Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of A Mic on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. Before we start, I need to let you know that today's episode has been sponsored by Konstantinos Tertsakis, who is a young Greek conductor based here in the United Kingdom. Konstantinos subscribes to my Patreon page at the conductor level, and his subscription means that he could choose an episode to sponsor. And given that Konstantinos was chosen in February of this year to be one of the CBSO's assistant conductors, this episode is the perfect choice for him to sponsor. There'll be more about my Patreon page and how to subscribe later on in this episode. Today, I conduct a conversation with an English conductor who started out as a cellist, but is now enjoying a flourishing career as a conductor. I first met him when in 2016, he became the assistant conductor of the CBSO. It's a great pleasure to welcome Jonathan Bloxham. Jonathan, it's been a while, quite a while, since we last saw each other. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. And it's great to see you and be with you. In fact, I remember being in that very room with you over some spores at some point a few <laughs> years back. Yeah, many hours we spent in here together. Um, you're not at home. You're in Brussels. Uh, a jump in, I presume. Absolutely. I jump in with the Belgian National Orchestra um, mm. on a couple of days' notice with a beautiful programme of Haydn, Mozart, Ades and Sasson. Oh, lovely. So, happy to be here. Yeah, brilliant. Um, you will know, because I think you've listened to a few episodes, that I always go straight back to the beginning. And I know, um, because we know each other, mm. that you're a cellist, but I wonder whether the cello was the first instrument and, and whether you come from a musical family at all, because I don't know. Well, I don't come from a family of musicians. They'd be very upset if I called them not musical. Right. Um, but I started the piano as a kind of six or seven-year-old, I think, kind of fairly casually as a thing that you do. Yeah. And very lucky that there was a piano in our family home, in fact. And then when I was eight, a peripatetic music teacher came round to my local primary school, Front Street Primary School in Wickham, and he said to this class, he happened to choose my class out of the two of them, there right. were two, in, two classes in my year, and he said, who wants to learn the cello? And I was one of those goody two-shoes, well, back then I was, and <laughs> I put my hand up and I said, yeah, I'll, I will. And so I think he, he took a few of us to one room and said, is this a happy chord or a sad chord? And is this note higher or lower? Just to check that, you know, yeah. we understood something. And I passed this little test and he gave me a cello. Um, and that was the beginning. So thankfully, through the through the Gateshead Schools Music Service, which yeah. provided free lessons back then, mm. I that's that's they set me off on my journey. And so I'm eternally grateful for that. What an incredible setup that was back then. And I know it's a bit in danger these days across the country, but yeah. it, I can't I can't have higher praise for what they did back then. I started at the age of nine, just a few miles south of there in Teesside in Stockton on Tees. And again, it was free. All my lessons were free. And when we moved south three years later uh, to Kent, it wasn't free, but at least there was a music service. Um, you know, nowadays, you know, all of these things are sadly disappearing, especially things like youth orchestras. So Gateshead, uh, the northeast of England, um, how long before you were playing in orchestras? I'm assuming there was a, a Tyneside Youth Orchestra or something. What was it called? It was with the Gated Youth Orchestra, right, and yeah. that was my first experience. I think basically the person who conducted it, John Traherne, who I think is probably one of my inspirations for why I'm doing what I am now, he let me join basically as soon as I could pizzicato. Right. So I kind of, you know, one note per bar on average, whatever yeah. the piece was, and I, I just was immersed into this social organism that is an orchestra. Mm -hmm. And I think that was clearly something that stayed with me, that idea of, being belonging to that community of musicians. Now, over a hundred episodes I've recorded, I cannot remember um, speaking to anybody previously who went to the menu in school, um, <laughs> which you did. What age were you when you went there? And how much of a shock was that going from a school in Gateshead down to the world famous menu in school? It was quite a shock. So I went at 16, um, okay. which meant that um, inverted commas, I had a somewhat of a more normal childhood before then. Yeah. Um, and it was it was incredible. It was very clear to me that I wanted to move away from the Northeast. There were some fantastic opportunities up there, but I knew deep down I thought I needed to be surrounded all the time by this, you know, I'm gonna live and breathe every day by live music, that is. And so at 16 I went down and I mean, having gone from some wonderful things in the Northeast to in my fourth week at the menu in school, 
uh, Rostropovich came to conduct the school orchestra <laughs> and we were playing in the Royal Albert Hall yeah. uh, with Kissin and playing a piano concerto. So it, it was, you know, it was an extreme difference and it just the most inspirational time. And I'm really pleased that I had my pre-manual school time. Yeah. And of course, the three years that I spent at manual school, so two A-level years and one kind of gap year at school yeah. um, were, you know, substantial and super important for my progression. Well, that's mind-blowing, isn't it, to go to that level of performance, uh, just the experience alone from going from, you know, no disrespect to Gateshead or Newcastle or Tyne and Weir to go down and then suddenly you're working with those people in that setting. Uh, that's amazing. I do have a very personal question because it's just popped into my head and we know each other very well, dear listeners, as you'll discover later why we know each other very well. Um, I knew all along that you were from... Gates said time and we're because of your association as we'll get to later with Northern Chords Festival and you lived there until you were 16 but there is not one twang of Geordie accent about you at all did you lose it when you went to the menu in school like I lost mine in two weeks when we moved south from Teesside to Kent or did you just never have one I don't think it was ever strong my sister right. has a slightly stronger one but uh, my parents aren't from the northeast okay but I have to say that undoubtedly moving down to the menu school did change my accents a little bit, but you will still hear words like, I still say grass and bath, not grass and bath. Okay. So, you know, I have to retain some heritage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I had the teachers taking the piss out of my accent, let alone the kids, you know, so when I was 12. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it, I'd sort of lost my very quickly. Uh, and I, I had the full Southern conversion to grass. And I even, I even <laughs> say brass band, which is, I know is terrible. But yeah, I thought I'd ask. I thought it was interesting to ask. Um, at this point, had you conducted at all yet? Was conducting anywhere near the front of your mind, or was it just something you encountered like most of us at this age? It was pretty much something I encountered. I think while I was at Menion School, I think in my last year, so I would have been 18 or 19, the concept of maybe one day doing it did come into my mind. And right. um, I had a conversation with the director of music then, Mark Singer, and I said, the typical, I went into his office, he's like, you want to chat about career? I'm like, yeah, sure. So we had a little chat and of course he spoke about chamber music and all the other things too. But he's, I said to him, one day I think I might like to conduct. And basically he said, that's very nice, but not now. <laughs> and he said, go play in orchestras, go read, go study, go play chamber music, get as play the cello as well as you possibly can first, yeah. and then maybe think about it. Yeah. And kind of accidentally, that's the advice I took. Yeah, and yeah. immerse myself in orchestral and chamber music for the foreseeable future at that point. And it wasn't until much later that actually I started putting little groups together to have a go. Did they teach conducting at Menuhin at all? I mean, I know speaking to uh, Daniel Harding way back when at the start of the podcast that he said there was no teaching of conducting at all at Chet's. Um, so I'm assuming it was the same at Menuhin. Exactly. There was nothing at many school. And so the first teaching I encountered was as a kind of elective study at the Guildhall. Yeah. And the elective teacher there was actually Sean Edwards, which we were you know, blessed by, given now she's at the Royal Academy's head of conducting. But mm. I must say, even then, I think I was a pretty poor student. I don't think I went to many of those <laughs> elective classes. I have to be honest. And she would remember that, too. Yeah. Um, but much later on, I sought her out and went to as many master classes and even had private lessons with her. But back then, it, it wasn't on my mind. I wanted to play chamber music. Yeah. I wanted. I had a piano trio which I was in. For three. I set up, and we were. I was in for three or four years, and we did all the almost all the international competitions in Europe, and that really took all of my energy and time. And that's what that's what my outlet was. And so that's the Bush trio. Is that right? Exactly, the Bush Trio, which yeah. still is still going on now. And actually, it was, we can, that's jumping ahead a little bit, but in 2015, in January 2015, I left that trio, which right. was sort of the kind of the turning point for me in terms yeah. of this journey. Yeah. So, Guildhall uh, was where you went after, you just said, after the menu in school and some elective conducting lessons was, and obviously the Bush Trio, were you playing orchestrally? Um, at Guildhall and did you have any ideas ambitions to play orchestrally as a professional when you left what was what was going to be the next move as a cellist so playing an orchestra 
um, because having started in the Gates Youth Orchestra, done a little bit of NYO pre-menu in school, then of course a little bit of string orchestra at menu in school, but there are no words. Playing in big symphony orchestras in London in Guildhall was such a treat. I remember doing, you know, sitting at the front, I think I led Marla 2 and played Marla 9. And just these these experiences were just outstanding music yeah. experiences and left a huge impression on me. And so around that, I was doing a little bit of freelance orchestral work, a couple of sessions, some student orchestras in London, things like this. But at the point I left, which was 2013, 14, that academic year when I left, the piano trio was in its full swing. Right. Because we'd won a few competitions, we had 50 or 60 concerts that season. And so um, the plan I think was the piano trio was sort of a, the dream of that was to kind of create like a new national ensemble, so something really flexible, actually, not stick with just piano trio repertoire. But in 2014, um, which was I think the big change year, I put a little concert on in London and filmed it. It was a mm. charity concert, and I asked some friends to come and play, and we filmed this concert. And I decided to send the video of this to the Donatella Flick competition. Yes, yeah. because I thought, why not? <laughs> I mean, a little ambitious, but who knows? Yeah, Let's yeah. start somewhere. Yeah, and yeah. and somehow I got into the final twenty, yeah. and that competition took place in December of twenty fourteen. And I, after a lot of conversations with colleagues and friends, I decided to let the trio know I wanted to leave, um, which I did just after the competition. But I was like, well, if if I've got in, then maybe it, I should have a go at this. Yeah. And so I went to the competition and I got to the final ten, and then I, unsurprisingly, didn't get to the final three didn't get to the final and one of the jury members took me aside straight away after this the finalists were announced yeah. and he said to me come come here come, come, come in the corridor I was like yeah sure and he said to me the whole jury wanted to put you through to the final I was like oh that's nice mm. and then he said but you need to learn how to conduct <laughs> <laughs> oh dear and I was like you know fair enough because I really hadn't had that much input and although I might have been somewhat musical I didn't really know at all what I was doing with my hands and so actually I asked his advice to ask and asked the jury's advice of who to go to study with yeah. and things like that and so actually that competitions I know sometimes aren't great experiences but for me that was such an incredible experience because it yeah. really put me on a set of tracks which has led me to this point. So you mentioned you then, uh, at some point, you sought Sean Edwards out again uh, and had some private lessons with her. The other two names on there that I I see are Nicholas Pascade and Pavlievi, who you've had mentorship with. Had you had uh, lessons, mentorship with those people before I trawled my way through 203 applications for the CBSO assistant conductor job, and which is the first time I saw you conduct on a video, uh, you know, whenever that was, probably 2015-16. I think I'd had mass one set of masterclasses with both of them at yeah. that point. So actually, Nicolas Pasquet was one of the names that was suggested by the John Telefilic jury, and so yeah. I immediately got in touch with him. And he had a masterclass the following summer in Romania, a masterclass with him and Mark Stringer. And so that was like a double masterclass, yeah. which is intense for a week, but fantastic. Yeah. And then later that summer, I also went to Pernu Festival in Estonia, where mm. I met Pavel Yevi for the first time. And so by the time I met you in spring 2016 for this audition with the CBSO, um, which was the life-changing moment of all of this, um, mm. I'd seen them both once. And actually, um, the, I've distinctly remember things from both both of those um incredible teachers so as i said 203 applications um i think we got it down this was stephen maddock the chief executive myself and tony howe who's the second trombonist still of the cbso uh, i'm not sure tony sat through all i think he liked the last batch of 90 that arrived in our inbox i think he said i can't watch these because my wife will divorce me otherwise um <laughs> eventually we got it down to a short list of about 40 and then we sat down in a room and whittled it down to 25 and then finally we all agreed on eight names and as you'll remember um in the morning of that day in spring 2016 all eight applicants came and had a session with two pianos 
in front of the jury, which was the three of us, plus Mirga Grajanita-Dila. I can't remember who else may have been on the panel. Um, you might remember. I can't remember whether there was anybody else. Then, but Maybe um, Zoe? Possibly, yeah. Possibly Zoe Bayers, yeah. Um, and then over lunch, that eight was whittled down to four, and you came and conducted the CBSO in the afternoon. Uh, I distinctly remember you conducting Roman Carnival Overture. Is that correct? Yes, it is correct. Uh, was there something else as well? And I think some Mozart. Yeah, I think oh, I think everybody had to conduct the Mozart, and then we'd we'd decided that you know you knew that you were going to conduct one of four pieces, but you didn't know which one until after lunch, or you had an hour, exactly. or something like that. Okay, it was some it was some clever way that we, it was done. I remember that day very well. How do you remember that day and the process? I remember it too. I just couldn't believe what was going on. I mean, yeah. I absolutely didn't expect to be chosen to the final eight, never mind final four, and never mind that moment when I was called up um, to the room where you were all sitting afterwards to give the results. I just mm. couldn't I just couldn't believe it. Yeah. And um, it was very humbling. And it was, of course, it was only the... I hadn't conducted many professional orchestras by that point, as you can imagine. Yeah. In fact, it, that... That spring, it was my third set, third assistant audition. Yeah. Audition for assistant position. And the one before that was with the RSNO, where I'd got down to the final three, but didn't get the position. And then the one before that, which in fact is the first time I conducted a professional orchestra ever. So like the first professional orchestra was actually the Philadelphia Orchestra. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's <laughs> which, straight in. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, baptism by fire doesn't really even cut it. Um, and no, so I was, no. Yannick and his team had chosen me to be one of the final six that auditioned live. Yeah. And I went there and had 20 minutes with the Philadelphia Orchestra. And hasten to say, I didn't really know what I was doing. Mm. And soon after that, I went up for some top-up lessons. Right, okay. Some of the aforementioned teachers. Yes, and yeah. that helped very much before the yeah. CBSO day, which yeah. was very exciting. Yeah. Well, what I remember about that day was, you know, the, us on the jury talking about, you know, what sort of candidate we were looking for. I mean, this had never happened before, as I'm sure you're aware. I've been the previous assistant conductor, two conductors before, but I, I'd been in a member of the orchestra and, um, and then was bumped up to become associate, which meant that they needed an assistant. And, and around that time, Alpes Chohan was... Uh, appearing on the scene through the CBSE's own youth orchestra. He became the intern, then the assistant. And then, you know, he did his two years and, and left. We'd never, ever advertised for that job. And I, and I you know, I, during the process, we think about, well, who, who are we after? The one thing I remember at the end of you finishing Roman Carnival was turning to Mirga and just saying, he changed the sound of the orchestra. She turned around and said, I know, that was amazing. You know, and that we both agreed, you know, that it was a different change, a different sound came from the orchestra. Um, and that's why we went for you. I mean, you know, it was it was as simple as that. Plus, loads and loads of potential. That was the point. And, and I think the point about the assistant job is you may well be having somebody who's raw, who hasn't, like you've openly said, not really conducted that much. But right in front of you for the next two years is going to be the best classroom you're ever going to get, which is, you know, standing in TQ, sitting on a bus, uh, maybe on the sixth pint in a pub when somebody says something, you know, in jest, but you you, you think about it a lot for days afterwards. Um, <laughs> how did you find the two years? Absolutely. Well, as you say, I was really green. I mean, I'm not yeah. saying I'm not green now, but it was like a bright green back then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so um, it was humbling to be chosen, and I knew I had a lot of work to do. Yeah. which meant that some of the situations I was put in, I was ready for and others perhaps not. I was yeah. ready to learn and I was hungry and I, I was I mean, obviously so grateful to you and the rest of the panel for seeing that potential and my willingness to absorb information in, as yeah. you say, some more obvious circumstances and then others, <laughs> not, not such obvious ones, like yeah. the pub or on a bus. Yeah. Um, and it, the first few projects, um, just by nature, the planning, with CBSO, some went better than others. And I remember one project, which was something to do with Sky Arts, where there was a, a kind of, some people had a click track and some didn't. And actually I wasn't best placed to do the project and I didn't right. know how to say no. Yeah. I also didn't know how to say I'm not ready mm. because it's quite hard to admit that to yourself or to other people around you. And I think the answer was probably, I wasn't the best person and probably I wasn't ready for it. And so obviously that, when you stand in front of your, new colleagues 
and you don't do your best job, it's we all know that. Yeah. And that's kind of tricky. Later yeah. in the year, I had my first subscription concert. And by that point, I'd had so much more experience. I'd conducted loads of youth orchestras and amateur orchestras throughout the year. I'd had loads of lessons with you, with some of the other teachers. And I think that went really well. And yeah. actually, I, I still um, go back to that video and, and analyze it and look at it. And that that led to a lot, that video from that concert led to loads of other things. Yes. But that took, it took a lot of undoing some of those early not undoing, but something like it took a while to realize some of those earlier missteps. They weren't mistakes, they were just missteps. Yeah. And um, I think knowing when to, knowing one's limits and things like that was a really, it, those things really taught me that. Yeah. Uh, uh, right, what you say about unpicking, you know, it's very, I mean, I, as you know, I used to, I was 22 years as an orchestral player. It's very easier to put a barrier up. It's very, it's much harder to, for you to let that barrier back down again and if you know, you've been involved in a project where you thought that it wasn't done to the best of its ability and you you think that you can maybe hang the hat on the conductor then that barrier goes up um you know but you you know over the the next whatever months it was you did really well to unpick it and bring it back down again and as you said um we spent a lot of time uh, uh with me and you just talking about you know going through videos um uh, lessons you could call them or whatever uh, you know I, I, I was there somebody who'd, who'd done that job to put an arm around you and say don't worry about you know what somebody says there you know these are the people you need to listen to these are the people <laughs> that you know they've got problems with it, you know, whatever um uh, and and by the way, I will say thank you for putting my name down on the list of mentors on your biography. That's very kind. Not every conductor has done that, but you have, and I'm very, very pleased about it. Um, it's true. <laughs> uh, well, thank you. But what's interesting is is that whole dynamic of uh, of getting to know people, um, because in in the end, at the start, you're you're an absorbent sponge. You want all of the nods you can get, and so and it comes at you so hard and fast that you don't know. Well, some of this is conflicting. What, what, who am I should, who should I be listening to? Who should I be, you know, and it takes a few bus journeys and a few TQs and a few, you know, heart to hearts in pubs with, with people that you get to know. We all you know every human being is the same. You bond better with some than others to find out what you need to find out. And I think that's, you know, I think that's very important. I remember giving you a lift home from Malvern and we stopped off for a beer with, with a couple of members of the brass section. And I, 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 I remember sitting there thinking, this is gold. He's getting absolute pure gold here from these two. <laughs> I definitely was. I remember, yeah. I remember exactly. Yeah. I mean, some of, it was, some of it was blunt and to the point, but it was gold, you know. <laughs> and, and I think every young conductor would kill to be put in that situation and it's not all roses, is it? it sometimes no. it's a lot of soul searching goes on. But when yeah. you look back... Of course, it, it's, it's yeah. essential because not only not only is it information, but it's also you know you're building a resilience to this yeah. as well, which we all need. I mean, go out there and meet yeah. continually yeah. new orchestras, which you know for me, seen a lot of new orchestras in the last few weeks, yeah. and actually, you know, realizing first how much the first impression counts. It's not yeah. everything, but how much how important that is, and how whether that's preparation, presentation, the way you speak, you know, being so on top of the scores technically simple and clean whatever it happens to be the yeah. all the things that i learned in that period at cbso are you know influencing my daily life right now mm. and without that and without seeing some of those the way that the players um talk about it and obviously sometimes about me sometimes about others other conductors um how, I, mean, I couldn't believe how lucky i was mm. those conversations to be on the fly on the wall in some of those conversations or in some of those rehearsals so incredibly lucky and it, it fed me for two years. Yeah, yeah. Well, I could, is that an ambulance I can hear in the background? It is. It's not coming yeah. from me. All right. <laughs> Good. You just mentioned it, guesting. Um, before I pressed record, we talked through the programme that you're doing this week and you happen to know it all and have conducted it all before. But when when you go and guest, and as you said, it's you're guesting with new orchestras much more than you are with old friends. I would imagine at the moment that's just the way the nature of the stage you're at at your career. Do you have any strategies? Do you have any personal thought processes that you go through before you walk out on a Monday morning? Uh, it's a repertoire that you, if possible, you you like to take with you because you know you do really well. Uh, well you know, what what sort of 
tips and tricks would you give to somebody who's maybe 10 years younger, 15 years younger, and, and in a, you know, about to leave college and go and try and do the same thing? I mean, these are, that's a big question. I mean, right now, a lot of the projects I'm doing, I've not chosen a repertoire. And so yeah. that's, that's quite interesting, because I think yeah. there is a difference where you've specifically chosen a piece that you've done before or know well to go and introduce yourself to to a new orchestra with. And if you can do that, I think that's great. Yeah. Um, I recently debuted with an orchestra and I took Borodin 2 with me yeah. because I knew they hadn't played it much. I knew we didn't have, we don't much rehearsal time, but I knew that I, I, I could make a quick impression with a piece that's not in the central part of the canon. And it went really well for that reason because yeah. it was just a little chance to talk about it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, whereas actually next week I'm doing Beethoven 5 with a German orchestra. Right. And so that would be interesting, you know, yeah. I, I'm sure we'll do some great work, but you psychologically, you know, going into that, that they've got a quite a clear opinion about this piece even before you start. And that's, that's very exciting too, because you find your way through the rehearsal process together. Mm. And it's not about just coming in with your ideas, of course, as you know, anyone listening will know, it's that kind of collaboration of finding today's version, this yes. week's version, our version. And it will be different with each group because mm. each group has their own personality. And so I think for me going in on day one, it's about discovering their personality and not being afraid to show my personality so that we can kind of quickly work out what the potential of the week is. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that's good advice. Really good advice. Um, before we leave the Northeast, Northern Chords, uh, is a festival that you're artistic director of and have been since, I'm guessing, 2010, 2011, something like that? Because um, your biography exactly, says yeah. you've been doing it 11 years. How much time does that take up uh, organising that? And I'll, I'll lump this in with another question, which is, are you still playing and do you play at your festival, um, <laughs> chamber music or solo recitals? Uh, how much playing are you still doing? I know, for instance, last time we chatted, probably, you were trying to memorise something to play in the Aurora, Aurora Orchestra. Um, but, you know, Northern Chords, <laughs> you know, uh, what's your commitment like to it? So Northern Chords, I kind of dreamt up back then, as you say, like in 2009, 2010, um, as an idea of coming back to home and kind of as a way of thanking the Northeast for this amazing start they gave me yeah. is bringing friends and colleagues back there and just having a great time. And I'm so grateful to everyone who comes because it's very mates rates. And mm. so we have a great, great weekend of music making and it's it survived each year and it's changed in its, um, I suppose it's in, the, in its capacity and its length and its intensity, depending on the year. Even during the lockdowns, we managed between the lockdowns, I should say, we managed to squeeze in a couple of events, which was right. right. Yeah. Um, this one's coming up now on the 14th to 15th of May, and we just announced it yesterday. Yeah. Um, and so but somehow between all these jump-ins at the moment and everything, um, fortunately with a little small team I have that's working around me on it, um, it it's, it's happening and it does take up a little time. I mean, and I, I don't mind that it does. I very happily sacrifice a bit of social time to to work on it because I really believe it's important to go back, keep keep in touch with one's roots. Mm. Um, next year in 2023, we're doing our first opera project. Oh, cool! Um, and where we're going to put on an opera that's not been staged or done for, I'd say, a, at least a hundred years in this country. It was yeah. recorded by the LSO in the 60s with Richard Bonning conducting um, and Bob Tier singing. And it's actually a piece written by a composer called William Shield, who lived on the same hill that I went to school on. Oh, wow. When I was given a cello. Yeah, cool. And so he lived in the 1700s and in 1781, he was the resident composer of the Opera House in Covent Garden. Yeah. And this piece was premiered on New Year's Eve um, back then. And it's called Rosina, this opera. And it was super successful back then. And it just hasn't been done much. So we're going to kind of give life back to it. Oh, we're brilliant. rewriting the libretto to make it up to date and a bit more politically correct. And, <laughs> yeah. um, and making it, we're going to set it in the Northeast hopefully in a food factory, right. by a, maybe a famous food factory, which I can't mention the name of. of course. Okay. <laughs> you, can, you can guess a famous Northeastern baker, shall we say. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, so Northern Court is still uh, really close to my heart. And to answer the cello question, I, I do love to play when I can. Right yeah. now I'm not playing in the festival itself, but I'm playing 
a few concerts of chamber music each year and it to stay in touch with the production of sound um and just that actual actual physical production of sound mm. is is wonderful and i've the first couple of years out of practicing because i didn't really, i kind of stopped practicing back then in 2015 actually i was probably playing better than i had done before because i wasn't stressed about missing the shifts or whatever anymore yeah. but yeah. it's definitely gone downhill since then and it's more and more painful that's mm. for sure and so it's a pleasure to keep in touch with chamber music making and also obviously rehearsing chamber music has such a different vibe to yeah. standing in front of an orchestra leading a rehearsal like that and it's actually lovely to sit and listen to colleagues discuss things like for hours on end and to have no rehearsal times where it no. must finish exactly here and you're stuck you're low watching the clock and so it's actually it's a it's a beautiful thing to do still and of course amazing music and so while I still can do it and while my colleagues put up with my occasionally scrappy sound i am very happy to continue playing well i fully intend to get this episode out before northern chords happens this year so i'll make sure i put a link in the show notes Thank below dear listener and you can go have a look and if you're in that part of the world go along and see what's happening one final question you know the 11th question is coming um and it's something we would have discussed probably for a while uh, in sitting in this very study, which is score marking. Um, I know you mark your scores, uh, if I remember correctly. Do you have the same system every time? Uh, do you go and use a piano? And when you mark your scores, are you a heavy scribbler still? Are you a coloured pencil scribbler still? Or have you evolved over the few years since you know we, we spent hours talking about it into another system? What do you do when you mark your scores up, Jonathan? Depending on how long I have, I suppose, yeah. to learn it is a big thing. Um, and whether it's opera or whether it's symphonic, because I yeah. think opera I mark up a little differently. I mark up less, actually. But right. I put as little as possible in an opera score. But... Uh, normally I have a little bit more time to learn this. Yes. Um, but it, otherwise, I mark in phrase lengths, first thing. Yeah. I then do use blue and red, like I used to. Mm -hmm. um, red for instruments, blue for everything else, whether it's tempo or beat pattern or uh, little extra details. Yeah. And then normal pencil for extra details, and yeah. extra aneous thoughts. Um, and... But I find myself marking less and less, though I though I always, almost always put phrase and a little mm. bit of harmonic analysis in. And um, yeah, it's I, it gives you that, it gives clarity of thought in the learning process. I find it, I learn much faster by doing that. And yeah. um, to, it's, you know, some of the jump-ins I've done in the last three or four months, I've had maybe less than 24 hours to learn a score. Yeah. And it's I find it essential having a really neat, carefully worked out system because I don't know how I'd able to uh, process information fast enough otherwise. Mm. I mean, some conductors have argued that if they had lots of writing in the score, their head would be buried in the score. My argument is if I see my red and blue and my black, I can get my head out of the score because I've highlighted the things that I would be searching for otherwise. And uh, I think over the course of the podcast, I think the scribblers are winning more or, more or less. But I think a lot of people have said that they mark in less the older they get or the more they conduct. And with opera, I'm not surprised because, you know, if you're doing a, a full production, you've got five or six weeks to write stuff in that you probably don't want to decide before you start rehearsing. So Absolutely. Don't, you know, don't write that stuff in. Um, Absolutely. Usually at this point... Some of you may be reaching for that little button that advances this episode on by 30 seconds, meaning that you may be missing interesting developments on my Patreon page. Over recent months, my Patreon page has expanded and is quickly becoming a great place for conductors and lovers of conducting to hang out. There's over 18 hours of interviews with musicians, composers, soloists and managers, as well as 18 bonus mini-episodes that accompany this podcast. I've written an article on score marking, started a series of articles on the art of programming, and I'm about to start a new series on string playing for non-string playing conductors. And you can even have conducted lessons from myself. All of this is available at patreon.com forward slash a mic on the podium. And from just £5 a month, which is less than a pint of beer in most cities across the world, you can gain access to this ever-growing resource on conductors and conducting. Details and links to the page are in the show notes attached to this episode. 
Now, the all-important 10 questions with my guest, Jonathan Bloxham. Jonathan, as somebody who has confessed to me that they've listened to about half of the episodes, and bravo you for doing so, that's brilliant. I'm very chuffed and proud that you have. You'll know what's coming next. It's the same questions, and you'll know that I start with what sound or noise do you love, and what sound or noise do you hate? I love silence or walking in nature, or whatever sound that is. Yeah. And I hate the sound of any construction work in the morning near my hotel room which happened to be this morning, so it's right on my mind. Oh, dear. Oh, well, I'm possibly going to Brussels very soon. Well, which hotel are you in? In the Hilton. So okay, um, right. I'll bring construction work here, be careful. <laughs> okay, uh, I'll see whether I, whether I have to go or not and whether they put me up there or not. That, it's very good to know. Thank you. <laughs> Inside advice. Yes. <laughs> uh, now, you probably haven't had many 24 hours free recently, um, but... If you did, how would you spend it? What would you spend your 24 hours free doing? Well, this week I was meant to be moving house, and so my belongings on Monday went to my new house in Cardiff, but I've not yet been there. I okay. wasn't even there to decide about the house we are renting, and so I would definitely go home and spend it in Cardiff. Right, OK. <laughs> what, just sorting out your house? Um well, uh, let's pretend the fairies have done that and I can just enjoy it. Okay, fair enough. And if you were on the road and, you know, you were doing a run of opera somewhere and you had a 24-hour free period and I banned you from listening to music or marking up a score, how else would you like to spend it? Um, well, I do love going out to restaurants. Yeah. I'm not sure I could do that for an entire 24 hours, but I'd, no. I'd give it a go. Good. If I could. Uh, well, hopefully that will lead to an interesting and wonderful thought-provoking answer for question 10, which is always my favourite question. <laughs> question four, and you can have more than one. Who would be a favourite conductor or conductors of yesteryear? Well, I think there's one that basically almost everyone goes to, which of course is Carlos Kleiber. But recently I've been listening to a lot and watching a lot of Svetlanov's huh. CDs and videos that are on YouTube, more and more resurfacing from his yeah. um, from the black and white era. And it's such elegant and nuanced conducting. And I was particularly listening to his Rachmaninoff Second Symphony, which I think this is a recording of, and a live video from Moscow on. And it's just, it's so elegant and beautiful and so much sub suppleness in the orchestral playing. Yeah. Whether that's from his rehearsals or from his gestures, I don't know. But I'm loving what he's, I'm loving his interpretations more and more. That intrigues me because I've not listened to any of the Russian stuff that Svetlanov's conducted, and maybe because somebody lent me a CD of, of a, a recording of him conducting Elgar's Second Symphony, which they just said, you know, you've got to admire the man's passion for Elgar, you know, but listen to it for the tempi, it's hilarious. And the first movement is so fast. I mean, the horns are rather than dug a dum It's It's so fast. <laughs> but but you know, you've convinced me to go and you know go down a, a YouTube wormhole, and I will I will dig him out. I'll have a look. And it go listen like... to this, the slow movement of the second Rachmaninoff Symphony, um, which yeah. I was doing earlier this year. Um, I just went through a, a patch of doing lots of old um, kind of romantic Russian music, and. Just became obsessed with it. It's so beautiful, this moment of that symphony. And each recording is slightly different to the other. It's great. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, I shall definitely be looking him up. Now, number five, the question that some conductors have, well, one conductor has refused to answer. Some have hedged uh, their answers uh, and been a little bit sort of um, uh, clever in, the, in not answering. But let's see whether you will answer. Who would be a favorite current conductor or conductors? For me, one conductor has been an incredible mentor, and it's so fantastic that he's still working. Of course, that's Pavel Yevi. Yeah. And so for me, it has to be him. And of course, I admire anybody getting up on the podium, all my colleagues of <laughs> yeah. all the different ages yes. who are doing it. But yeah. Pavel has had such a special influence on my journey so far that I have the utmost respect for him. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, he's, he's, he's it's surprising, really, because... He's been around quite a while now. I mean, I remember playing for him when you know, he was principal guest for the CBSO, which feels like you know a hundred years ago, but it wasn't. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, brilliant, brilliant choice. Number six, what is the hardest work you've ever conducted? Well, that of course is tricky because I think pretty much every work has difficult yeah. moments and passages, whether it's 
technical or uh, artistic or emotional. But mm -hmm. there was one particularly um, exciting, shall we say, uh, <gasps> evening last summer where um, I was very lucky to be working a lot at Glyndebourne last year, both yeah. in the festival and on the tour. And during the festival, I was working as the assistant conductor to Enrique Mazzola on Luisa Miller. Yeah. And I, he was doing the first six shows of the run and I was doing the final four shows of the run in the right. festival, which is my festival debut. It was all very exciting. And of course, when you agree to this, you don't, you forget that potentially this, this, the following situation might occur. And of course we were in the middle of COVID too. So my conducting Louisa Miller for the first time, I didn't, it was my first time doing the piece, but also I um, hadn't really done many of the rehearsals. Right. With the orchestra. And so basically I was conducting the LPO for the first time in a performance of Louisa Miller-Aglainborn <laughs> with a cast change, a tenor cast change, which was planned, but he'd also never worked at Glyndebourne or sang with the LPO and there was no pre-rehearsal. And also because of COVID, we had a, the main soprano role change too. Oh, and God. so the cover soprano was singing from the side of the stage while someone else acted it. And so it was an exciting evening, shall we say, um, <laughs> as I learned how to drive the magnificent um, vehicle that is the LPO. Yeah. But of course, you, you know, as, much like any time you get in front of a new orchestra, you have to just, you know, work out how to um, uh, how to be with them and how yeah. to help and how, how, how to um, make music with them. And so doing that as a performance was very exciting. Of course, by that point, the LPO knew the piece backwards yeah. and were the most incredibly supportive group and supported the stage, supported me, definitely got me out of a couple of corners in that. And it was wonderful to have three more performances to kind yeah. of grow together. And by the fourth one, it really felt like our thing. Um, but that was that was definitely a huge challenge because there was a little pressure on the evening and um, I learned so much doing it. And mm. I'm very grateful for the challenge, but it was... It was definitely hard. Well, it sounds hard. It sounds very, very difficult, you know, with all of those shifting goalposts. I mean, I think it's worth saying that there is such a difference between, you know, you knowing that there are 10 performances, you're doing the final four, uh, Matt Sola, who's, of course, appeared on the podcast doing the previous six, uh, and the orchestra will, as you said, know it backwards by then. But they also, you know, and I think in that situation, they want you to, to, to succeed because you've got four performances with them. They don't want it to fall down around their ears. They don't want a car crash in that first performance. And, and they know the difficulties of, you know, a new tenor, uh, sopranos singing from the wings. They know how difficult that is for, for you and also for them. And so, you know, they will, they will pull the stops out. It it's was hard it, it, and beautiful, I have to yeah. say, because that you see how incredibly collaborative they are, and you see in their in their eyes underneath the masks uh, that we were wearing how much they want um, want it to go well. Yeah. And of course, you either all you want to do is to do your best job as well for them. It's kind of this beautiful. We're all aiming for the same goal. There's no animosity. There's no there's no um, no even even close to daggers being out. It's just beautiful support and so yeah. I kind of that was it was a kind of a, an incredible ride of emotions that evening a huge arrival point kind of a, a big career moment too to be doing yeah. that um and I couldn't have been more lucky to have a, such a group of people around me and of course the cast who were also the ones who weren't the changes also looking after their colleagues on stage and yes, saying no yes. no go, st go stand here or or, <laughs> the, or this or no the you know because this is yeah. it was it was um a challenge for everybody but I really Special one. I, I mean, the, I agree. But the point I was going to make was that, you know, it is vastly different from the attitude that, you know, and I, I think it shouldn't be different because I think an orchestra should be in the same frame of mind on a Monday morning when they meet a guest conductor for the very first time. But it's often not the case. And often, you know, that they're guarded and that they're, you know, some people are ready for a fight on a Monday morning. Um, <laughs> and, and it is different, isn't it? Whereas that, you know, that situation you've just described with the LPO at Glyndebourne was definitely a place where everybody's out to help each other on and off the stage uh, and in the pit and and everywhere else in between. Whereas a Monday morning can not always feel like that. Um, and, and it's more of a, it's more of a, of a, you know, that it's, I don't know, people trying to find each other. Whereas you haven't got time for that. You know, once the curtain comes up and the lights go down, you haven't got time for finding each other. It's right. Let's get, get our hands dirty and get on with it. You know, and that's, it's a big difference. 
Absolutely. I think, you know, when us conductors come into a Monday morning rehearsal, it's our job to be the shining beam of positivity in the room yes. and, and, you know, and start the week in that way. Yeah, um, and, uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And deflect whatever death rays are coming at you. <laughs> also, you must forget that we're all, we're all just humans and sometimes I know. a grump on a Monday yeah. morning and it could not be about us. So, no, no. You know? It could be about all sorts of different reasons. <laughs> exactly. Number seven. When travelling abroad to conduct, what item could you not leave home without? It might be a bit boring, but right now I've discovered an eye mask. Mm. <laughs> Which sounds a little dull, but I've only just started taking one with me and it's Chain, I mean, I try to sleep at every single possible moment in whichever yeah. mode of transport I'm in right now. And normally I can, and I used to be able to sleep a lot more, like literally anywhere, anytime. But right. now I just find an eye mask, it's a bit dull. This helps a lot. It's not dull at all. I mean, if you're somebody who needs sleep, uh, yeah, sleep. <laughs> and use everything you can to do it. I mean, there's people use melatonin for, you know, jet lag and all that sort of stuff. I mean, I mean, I like my hotel room to be as dark as possible, um, which is not always possible. There's so many things plugged in these days, charging and bleeping and bipping away. Um, Absolutely. But, I, you know, I'm somebody who can survive on six hours, so I'm lucky in that respect. But, you know, I, I don't think it's a boring answer at all. I'm not even sure. <laughs> I've had an eye mask before. I may have had earplugs, but not eye masks. So <laughs> not boring. Excellent. <laughs> Number eight. What is the one thing you would change about being a conductor? Early morning rehearsals. How early? I mean, I'd say anything before 10 is yeah. ideal. 10.30 is a wonderful time to start, I think. But, you know, 10 is okay. 10.15 is fine. 9.30, 9.15 I've had recently. That was maybe not ideal. But, yeah, I'm not a morning person. So for me, very selfishly, that would be what I would choose. Yeah, I've done some 9.30s, uh, mainly in London. And, you know, you, I'm lucky. I'm probably in a hotel on the South Bank and I can get up fairly late, have a hotel breakfast and wander along to the Royal Festival Hall. The people in the orchestra are not that lucky. They may well have an hour's commute and, and probably have, you know, they're probably getting up at half six, six o'clock. And... I have to say that I'm not sure any of us are at our best at that, that point. Uh, so, yeah, I'm with you. 10.15 rehearsals, 10 o'clock, that's brilliant. 10.30, even better. Um, yeah. Whilst yeah. I've got you on here, a subject that I don't think has come up, and it's about rehearsals, and it's about mornings, and it's about afternoons. And as somebody who's played in, in orchestras, but obviously conducts a lot, what are your feelings on a morning rehearsal on the day of an evening concert? Now, it's a pretty standard thing on the continent, to use an old phrase, um, especially in certain areas of Scandinavia. Uh, mm. I've done it regularly in Norway. I know, for instance, that yeah, the dear orchestra I used to play with hated them with a passion because the day was ruined. You know, you'd had your rehearsal in the morning. You couldn't go off and do something else. I mean, a few of us used to go and play a round of golf and then come back and do the concert. But you know, <laughs> what, what do you think about it? I mean, it's just that it's never come up. And somebody who's both played and, and conducted, I wonder whether you, it's something you've got any any real thoughts about. I don't know. I, I, I don't mind personally. So that's bad. I mean, yeah. but I think maybe it depends on the size of the city you're in. So if you're in a really small city and somewhere and everything's quite close, maybe it's nice to have the afternoon at home either with family yeah, or things yeah. again i don't have a family so it's um you know it's it's hard to understand that i know that sometimes like simple things like that can really change a lot for a player yes. you know whether it's child care or picking up children from school or seeing them off in the morning and how mm. important that is and so finding a rehearsal structure as a organization that is never going to be perfect perfect for everybody but works best for most i think is really important and so i think when you know those discussions i think are essential um, whether they're with the conductor involved in that or not. Um, I think we should never push too much from, and um, either way. I find that if there's a morning rehearsal and an evening concert, the eye mask is very helpful in the afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> I was just about to bring that up because I, I personally could, couldn't think of anything worse than falling asleep in the afternoon because I wake up feeling absolutely awful. But if you're somebody who does doze and, and have little power naps, I would imagine it's wonderful for you. 
um <laughs> yeah uh yeah i just thought i'd ask i don't think it's come no, it's up in, on it's, it any of the previous episodes so um and it's something all to do with your mental state your physical state and how you cope with it and it depends completely on where you are and how the orchestra likes to work um i just remember the first time doing it thinking do you know what i don't mind this but it all it's doing is prolonging the moment of you know uh, it's just it's just I'd rather get on with it now. I know I've yeah. finished rehearsals. I can't say or do anything more. Let's just get out there and play, you know. Um, but that's my attitude, and I know other people's are different. <laughs> now, number nine. I have no idea what your answer is going to be, even though I know you fairly well. Number nine. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt or have liked to have had a go at? Well, you know, following on from the festival, where obviously I'm showing that I'm an organiser and enjoy just organizing things for people um yeah. and it's something that crossed my mind during the very first of the lockdowns last year yeah. which is that the idea of like owning a little cafe or restaurant i think that would be such a beautiful thing to do and yeah. being there for the community and i mean i like cooking but i would not be the chef i just <laughs> enjoy just there i mean i enjoy eating there yeah. maybe sitting at a bar and having a drink and being that person um and um but I think that would be such a gorgeous thing to do, but probably horrifically difficult. And it's very much a fantasy and the hours would be horrific. And so probably it's more like a, if, you know, it will never happen, but you know, yeah. as a concept more than an actual idea. No, that's fine. That's absolutely fine. Um, but what it does do is lead on wonderfully to the final question, of course, which is somebody <laughs> who enjoys eating. Um, we know that you, made, <laughs> you don't want to cook it, but uh, let's find out. If the world were to end tonight, what would be your choice of final meal and drink? There's so much fantastic food out there, but probably something simple done well. So the carbonara at Satoria, which is an Italian restaurant in London, mm -hmm. it's the best carbonara in the world, I think. I'm sorry for all the Italians out there who think it's <laughs> Italy. It's an Italian chef, but yeah, in London, and a glass of Sardinian wine. Oh, nice. And the carbonara, is there a raw egg put in it, as I've seen in other versions where... You know, the spaghetti comes out with the bacon and the cream, but there's a raw egg in the middle. And then when you mix it all up, the egg all goes in the right way. Or is the egg already cooked and in there? It is exactly the first way. There's a raw egg on top, um, confit, and it's just, there's something, whatever he does, it's just incredible. And something comforting would be a perfect way to well, have a last meal. Wonderful. Uh, it sounds great to me. I'm, I'm right up for a carbonara or whatever. And, uh, and a perfect way to spend an hour. Thank you, Jonathan. It's been great catching up. Um, it's been a while, as I said, but it's been wonderful having you on. And I hope very soon, as we've done in the past in Birmingham, we can maybe pull up a couple of chairs by the side of a canal and have a few G&Ts <laughs> and, and have some more chatting soon. That would be very nice. And maybe a carbonara if we're lucky. Let's hope so. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. A Mic on the Podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal, with music by Ben Dawson. Next time, I interview the first Mexican conductor to appear on the podcast. Over a long and distinguished career, he's conducted all across the planet, but mainly divides his time between the Flint Symphony Orchestra in Michigan, where he has been music director for 33 years, and Buenos Aires, where he's been principal conductor of the Buenos Aires Philharmonic for 15 years, and general artistic and production director of the Teatro Colón for five years. But until then, bye-bye.